From Miami Law, I'm Annette Ugez, and this is The Explainer. And so hopefully we can at some point get to a point where we shrink the system to provide high quality help for the most serious cases that really need it and figure out other more supportive and less traumatic ways to help the many more families who get entangled in the system when some support and some help would have been a much better way to address whatever the concern was. Welcome back to Season 7 of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Recently, Florida sheriff's deputies pulled over a new mother and took her newborn during a surprise roadside welfare check. Miami Law's Keely Stewart, co-director of the Children and Youth Law Clinic, and Robert Latham, associate director, join us with an overview of a troubled state. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Keely and Robert. Nice to have you both with us. Good morning. Good morning. Hey. Um, so over the last few years, there's been a lot of discussion about how abusive the child welfare system can be to families in need, especially toward black and brown and poor families or families with disabilities. Scholars and activists have called to abolish the system completely and replace it with something more supportive. American Idol finalist Siasha Mercado was recently in the news because the Florida Department of Children and Families removed her children from her care. She spoke out loudly about the way the state treated her family. Siasha's experience opens a window we rarely see into the child welfare system. Keely, can you tell us a little bit more about what happened? Sure. So Mikado and her partner took her 18-month-old son to the hospital to get fluids. She had apparently been breastfeeding him and was trying to transition him to bottle milk because at that point she was pregnant with a second child. According to the news reports, the hospital said that when she showed up at the hospital, the child was suffering from malnutrition and that Mikado um, and her partner refused a B12 shot for her son and that it was a matter of life or death. The parents say they did not refuse the shot and that her child was never at risk of dying. Nevertheless, the hospital called DCF. Um, We'll refer to DCF a lot throughout. It's short for Department of Children and Families. And DCF removed her son from a custody and put him to live with an estranged relative. So that was the first removal and would have been traumatic enough for anybody But there was a second removal. Five months later, Manatee County sheriffs pulled the family over in their car, and her newborn daughter was removed by the sheriffs during a roadside safety check. Um, They live-streamed the incident, um, and so it's gotten a lot of attention. But it seems as though the sheriff was executing a pickup order signed by the judge to be able to take the baby in for a medical checkup. Mercado and her partner, Denier, say that they had paperwork showing that they had taken the new baby for a checkup just the day before, but neither the judge or the sheriff knew that at that point. Thankfully, the newborn was returned to them a week later, um, but at that point, news reports reported that they still don't have custody of their two-year-old son. God, this sounds like a parent's worst nightmare. She went to the doctor for help, but she winds winds up with an abuse call being made against her. Robert, can you tell me how this happens? Yeah, so the first problem is Florida has what's called universal mandatory reporting. 
That means everyone in the state has to call the child abuse hotline if they suspect the child is being abused, abandoned, or neglected. And even more than that, a person could face a felony charge for knowingly and willingly not reporting. And there are even added penalties above that for professionals like teachers, healthcare providers, and social workers. They can lose their license, which means losing their job. The second big problem is the definitions of abuse, abandonment, or neglect are very, very broad. Uh, relevant to this case, neglect is defined as situations where a parent deprives a child of necessary medical care and causes significant harm. But the question is, who gets to decide that, right? So the traditional role of a parent is, in fact, to decide for your child which care they get, the pros and cons, the side effects, the, the benefits, and, and that sort of thing. Um, in neglect, though, it, it places the burden on the state to determine whether the parent made a good decision. So there are lots of exceptions to neglect. For example, uh, a parent can't be found to have neglected their child because of financial reasons or in cases where they decline medical care because of religious beliefs. Uh, there's even a, an exception to neglect for parents who get conflicting advice from different doctors and only follow one doctor or the other. All of those exceptions are there. Um, it doesn't sound like those things happened in this case, though. It sounds like uh, Saisha Mercado went to one doctor, and before she was able to get a second opinion, that doctor acted. And so why would that happen? Well, if a parent refuses the doctor's recommendation, the doctor has a lot of pressure at that point to call DCF, mostly to avoid liability, right? If the parent's decision turns out to be wrong or the condition gets worse, the doctor could be later accused of not doing what they needed to do. Uh, the doctor then gets DCF and a court system involved to, to start second-guessing that parent's decision. Yeah, if I could add one thing that it's important for our listeners to realize is that the hotline call doesn't necessarily mean that the child will be removed. The call starts an investigation. At that point, DCF has 60 days to decide whether they want to remove the child from the family or keep the child in the home. And the state is supposed to use that time to make what's called reasonable efforts to prevent the child from having to be removed from their parents. And so in the law, there's this idea that um, removal is supposed to be a last resort, but in practice, that's often not reflected in the cases. Um, and so if the state removes the child, then the parent has to participate in some services that are supposed to address whatever the issue is that brought that particular family into the system. And in theory, if they do everything the state asks them to do and address those issues, they should get reunified with their child. Mm. Well, that explains how the first child uh came to be removed but the second child i've never heard of anyone being removed from the side of the road um and there's i haven't heard any reports that the second child had any medical problems so how can a child be removed if the parent hasn't harmed them yeah so a few years ago florida law changed so that if a parent or family has an open case and a new child is born during that case by law, automatically, that second child is deemed to have been abused by the parent. So that, that's what we call a legal fiction. Clearly, even if that parent had never harmed that child at all, the law considered them abused just by having been born into the case. So the department in situations like that can go to the judge and ask for an order called a pickup order to bring the child in for an investigation. And that seems like what happened in this case. Uh, as Keely said, the good news is that uh, the sec that second child was recently returned uh, to Saisha and her partner. 
um, which is good because it deems that there means that the court has determined that it's safe and, and that that child can go back. Uh, the first child, however, seems to still be in foster care. Siasha's case has given us a very public view into these cases, but in your practice in the clinic, do you see that these types of cases happen often? Yes, um, people have been surprised at the circumstances and the fact that these children could have been removed from their parents. But most cases in foster care don't involve abuse at all. Most families in the child welfare system are there for what we call neglect. Nationally, 63% of child welfare cases are for neglect. And even in the neglect cases, most of the children haven't yet been harmed. Right? There's a concern that there might be a risk of harm or imminent harm. And the law also allows the department to remove a child if it thinks that there's a prospective risk of harm. There's a very vague legal definition in the statute that leaves a lot of room for state discretion. And so in practice, a lot of the circumstances that bring families into the child welfare system have to do with poverty, lack of adequate housing, lack of child care, those kinds of circumstances that more support or resources might help. Um, the other broad category of neglect cases involved behavioral health issues like dealing with substance abuse or mental health challenges or domestic violence. And all of those things are things that could be treated or dealt with through community-based social services um, if they're available. Okay. That sounds like a huge problem with the neglect cases. So Robert, if I understood him, said that it's not neglect unless you refuse the services that were offered. But if you live in if in if you live in an area with no services and no help available, you're more likely to have your child removed from your home. Is that right? Exactly, exactly. And that's how the system drags in so many black, brown, and poor families, right? The the doctors and the hospitals receiving Medicaid or no funds at all from the parents are less likely to work with them over med multiple medical appointments to try to address their needs. Often, poor families live in communities that are less likely to have services that an investigator could rely on to avoid removing the child. And then once children are in the system, all of those factors come together to make them less likely to then be able to do this, the recommended services to get out of the system. And of course, all of this happens within the context of a history of racism within the child welfare system, as well as racism and community divestment in black and brown communities that create these conditions with a lack of resources. And that's where a lot of the child welfare system involvement is concentrated in certain high poverty neighborhoods in many communities across the state. And so what we see as a result is that families at risk of DC alpha involvement can be very reluctant to seek medical help for their children or get their own substance use or mental health issues addressed. A, med, med, a middle class family, sorry, may view the hospital as a place for help, but a vulnerable family that's all too familiar with the work of DCF could reasonably see it as an extension of the state's police power. And so for families that find themselves accused of maltreatment, if they don't satisfy all of the hoops that the state asked them to jump through, they could risk losing their parental rights to their children forever. 
the system seems to be doing exactly the opposite of of what it should be doing. Is there a fix to that? So a lot of advocates right now are focusing on eliminating mandatory reporting laws, which sounds like a bad idea. Don't we want people reporting abuse, abandonment, and neglect? But what we found is that people report things that don't need to be reported. They report to protect them, their own selves from liability. And so universal reporting does lead to a high volume of reporting, but not necessarily better um, ability to identify abuse. So for example, in Florida alone, investigators have to handle 17,000 abuse investigations each month. That, that comes up to 200,000 a year. And they only have 60 days to do those investigations. So the volume and the quality of these investigations is, is both too high and, and too low. So eliminating mandatory reporting laws is number one. Um, I'd say number two is transforming the system into one that helps families rather than just inflicts more trauma, um, particularly on families that are poor, working class families, the ones that need the system the most, but are also targeted by it. So families need access to services in their community. And the services are things as basic as childcare, mental health, substance abuse, treatment, and even just medical care. Um, Number three, I would say, is removal should be limited only to the most serious of cases. So um, currently, cases with an allegation of abuse are about 40% of the cases in the system. If we use removal as a last resort, case managers, I would think at least would be less overburdened, would be able to actually focus on the things going on in the families. Yeah, and even things like economic assistance, like the child care credit um, that um, became universal during the pandemic, has been proven to help reduce maltreatment, particularly among low-income families. In cases like Seisha Mercado's, you could imagine that if there were concerns about breastfeeding, which many women experience issues with breastfeeding, for example, we could have assigned a lactation specialist. We could have asked um, a visiting nurse to visit the family regularly and perhaps provide some education. As a matter of fact, visiting nurse programs are one of the programs that in different parts of the country have been proven to be effective at helping families reduce some of the risk to children. And so instead, we've spent all of this taxpayer money. I, I don't know the specifics of this case, but if this were a traditional foster home getting the regular foster home stipend, it means that in six months, we've already spent over 7500 on both direct subsidies to the foster parent and indirect subsidies like WIC and um, child care providers, et cetera, not to mention the huge bureaucratic costs like salaries for case managers, therapists, lawyers, guardians at litem, and this entire infrastructure that makes this system run. And so hopefully we can at some point get to a point where we shrink the system to provide high quality help for the most serious cases that really need it and figure out other more supportive and less traumatic ways to help the many more families who get entangled in the system when some support and some help would have been a much better way to address whatever the concern was. 
Hmm. Good. Well, this has been both depressing and uh, enlightening. Um, thank you both for taking the time to speak with us. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. All righty. Take care, all. Thanks for joining us at The Explainer for a whole new season of interpreting legal issues in the headlines. If you love our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uges. Today's episode is brought to you by The Leadership Game Plan, a new podcast from the University of Miami School of Law featuring former NFL coach Mark Tressman. Thank you.